Our passage this morning is found in Luke chapter 19. We'll be looking at verses 28 through 44. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you do not know the time of your visitation. Let us pray together and ask the Lord's help as we seek to understand his word. Father God, we thank you for this Palm Sunday, this day where we are reminded of Christ's triumphant entry into the city, but God knowing that the end of this entry would be outside of the city on Friday, nailed to a cross. But God, that, that does not diminish the fact that Jesus Christ, even right now, is our King, presently ruling and reigning. So as we open your word, would you revive us by it? Would you restore us? Would you help us to see our King in all his splendor, in his beauty? And may it lead us to worship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I have said it before, I am a big fan of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, both the books and the films. It truly is a great story from beginning to end. During some of my time in isolation, I have been re-watching the movies, and I must say that these films hold up well despite being almost 20 years old. It's hard to believe they were from 2001, 2, and 3. And just a few days ago, I finished the second film, The Two Towers. And early on, there is this powerful scene where Gandalf the wizard frees the king of Rohan from the power of evil that has gripped not only him, but his kingdom. And that scene in particular, it is impossible to watch it and not see how Tolkien, the author, is pointing forward to Jesus Christ. But the part that I want to emphasize actually happens in the lead up to that moment. Under the control of evil, the kingdom of Rohan is in bad shape. 
gloom fills the air and it's depicted so poignantly when you see the flag of Rohan fall from its post and kind of blow through the town as a tumbleweed. And then as Gandalf and Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli approach the throne room, they are stopped by members of the king's guard. And after commanding the travelers to disarm, the soldiers welcome the four men into the king's throne room. They know Gandalf, they know his history, his character. They know that he is able to help. Without verbalizing it, the men hold out hope that Gandalf will help their king and their kingdom. I believe that they allow Gandalf to keep his staff as a sign of such hope. And upon entering the throne room, Gandalf and his company, they find they are not as welcomed as they were outside those doors. In fact, they are unwelcomed. The king's evil advisor whispers to the king, he, Gandalf, is not welcomed. And the king follows by asking, why should I welcome you, Gandalf Stormcrow? He calls him a bearer of conflict. Not exactly words of welcome, words of reception. The king confesses that Gandalf's presence is unwanted. His aid is rejected. And so before the rest of this scene unfolds, there is a profound tension filling the room. Gandalf is both wanted and unwanted. He is both received and rejected. Luke's account of Jesus' triumphal entry has a similar feel to it. On the one hand, there is this great joy. Jesus Christ is entering the city of Jerusalem. The king has come. He is welcomed and received with great delight. And this is often what we think of when we consider this very familiar event. The palm branches waving, the people rejoicing. This is appropriate. The triumphal entry is a celebration of the king. However, there is also great tragedy here. The king has come, more specifically, the king has come to save, and he is hated and unwanted. By the end of this scene, there is a question demanding to be answered, and it centers on the reality that Jesus Christ, without a doubt, is the king. The crowd has answered the question. Even the religious leaders representing Israel have answered the question. Creation itself answers the question. And this question still stands this morning demanding an answer. Jesus Christ is the king come to save. How will you welcome him? This morning outline follows the unfolding of this event. It can be found at the top of page 6 in the online bulletin. Three points. We'll see the king is ruling, the king is recognized, and then finally the king is rejected. Together I hope and pray that these move us to welcome our king with humility and joy for the salvation that he has secured for us. We begin with the king is ruling. Or to put it bluntly, Jesus is in complete control of everything regarding his entry into Jerusalem. It is impossible to read Luke's account and not see how Jesus the king is sovereign over it all. Even the entire context into which this story unfolds has been ordained by him. 
We didn't look at it, but the parable of the ten minas in verses 11 through 27 kind of sets the stage for the triumphal entry. The parable, which is primarily about faithful stewardship, is also a picture, a glimpse of what Jesus is about to encounter, both in his entry into Jerusalem and in his weeks spent there. If you look just ahead at verses 12 and 14, they read, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then returned. But his citizens hated him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. As Jesus gets ready to enter the city, he knew what was coming. He was the coming king about to be rejected by his people. The triumphal entry would prove it, not to the surprise of Jesus. But we also see that the setting itself was under Jesus' control. He picked the place. It says he drew near to Bethpage, Bethany, and at the mount that is called Olivet. Bethpage and Bethany are small towns. There's little known about them besides that they sit merely a few miles outside of the city. But from John's gospel, we do know that both Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived in Bethany. Jesus is entering Jerusalem shortly after calling Lazarus forth from the tomb. He's gained more followers as his power and identity have been revealed, but the plot to kill him, as John 11 reveals, is also gaining traction in the aftermath of this event. And even the mountain itself is a point of Jesus' control. The entire range sits about 2,700 feet above sea level to the east of the city. This mount is notorious for offering the best views of the city. From those I know who have been to Jerusalem, that is one of the prime places they would like to go to, to see the city spread out before them. But more specifically, it offers a straight-across view of the temple. The location was a perfect place for the king of Israel to announce his coming and parading into the city. But the greatest point of emphasis that Luke makes regarding the king's rule, his sovereign reign, is in verses 30 through 34. Where Jesus pulls two unnamed disciples aside to give them very specific instructions. There is nothing hypothetical about these instructions. He says, go into the village in front of you. Where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. It is almost as though, as though Jesus gives the men a map, where to stop, what to get, and even what to say. This would be like getting your weekly grocery list and it including not only the items to get, the aisle and the shelf at which they're located, but the exact item itself. Not just any box of Cheerios, the third one in with a slight dent on it in the bottom right corner. I wish I had a specific list that detailed, but I don't. Jesus knows what his disciples will find when they enter the village. Now, is it possible, as some argue, that Jesus actually went ahead and made these arrangements beforehand? Yes, it's possible. But Luke's emphasis, not only here, but from 9.51 on, has been pointing that Jesus is on a determined march to Jerusalem. And he is sovereignly in control. The steps have been ordained each and every point along the way. 
Nothing is going to be a shock, including what happens in this triumphal entry. As one commentator says, for Jesus, the coming events will include no surprises. He has announced the sequence of events. And when the disciples' experience exactly fits what he has predicted, this theme is strengthened. Jesus is clearly in control. Not because of some prior arrangements, but because of his power and his rule as the king. And verse 32 confirms it when the disciples go and they find everything just as it had been told them. Even the objectors and their objections went according to plan. And none of this was for show. Jesus was not trying to impress his disciples. Luke includes these details again to drive home the fact that Jesus was the king, ruling and reigning even as he walked this earth. And he would continue to rule and to reign even over the details leading up to his crucifixion. Later on, we'll see Jesus give Peter and John specific instructions about the Passover and where it is to be celebrated. And in similar fashion, they will go and find everything to be just as he had told them. In the coming days, Jesus will foretell Jesus, uh, Peter's denial. He will reveal his betrayer as Judas, and he will go to the cross. And none of these details would be coincidental or the results of some perfect storm in Israel. He will go because, as we saw last week, this was his mission. He will go because the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit ordained it in eternity past that this is how God would save his people. Jesus would go to the cross as he entered the city in full control over every single detail that transpired so that he would secure eternal salvation for those who come to him. And the fact that our king is in control should be of great comfort to each of us each and every day. He reigned over his triumphal entry and his crucifixion. He rules over the good days and the bad days of our lives. And it should be especially comforting in these truly unique and uncertain days. The coronavirus, it did not slip through the king's sovereign hand. It did not escape his sight as he was preoccupied with other things. No, he is sovereign over it. He has a purpose for it. We may not know what it is. We may never truly know why. But we can trust his power and authority. We can also trust that the refuge in the king and the, the refuge that our king offers. He is strong, he is secure, he is a rock. The days ahead are uncertain. They may be troubling, both personally, corporately, financially, globally, you name it. And it is easy to fear just thinking about them. But let us first remember and find comfort that our king is ruling today. He will rule tomorrow, and in the days, and the weeks, and the months still to come. But Luke not only shows that the king is ruling, he also shows that the king is recognized for who he is. Jesus is received and celebrated as the king come to save. We see this first in the twelve disciples. They're the first to demonstrate an understanding that Jesus is, in fact, the king. When the two disciples come back with the colt, it says that they brought it to Jesus. 
and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks out on the road. Out of respect and reverence, the disciples provide Jesus with a makeshift saddle. They lay their cloaks on the donkey. And then further down the road, they roll out this makeshift red carpet of their cloaks. These cloaks were not some high-priced items. They were simply the outer layers that most everyone wore in those days. But the value is not the point. The picture of laying their cloaks down before the king is a picture of humility. It is a picture of the disciples recognizing the honor of Jesus Christ. Jesus is worth whatever trampling will become of their jackets because he is the king. Now it is doubtful that the disciples were fully aware of what they were doing, but it had Old Testament precedent. In 1 Kings chapter 1, we find that David set Solomon on his mule and announced, Long live King Solomon. It confirmed Solomon's kingship over and against the attempted coup by his brother, Adonijah. But greater still, we have the prophecy from Zechariah 9, 9, where the prophet says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Other accounts of the triumphal entry quote a portion of this, but Luke only alludes to it in his description of what the disciples do. They mount Jesus, they place Jesus on the colt in celebration of his arrival in Jerusalem. They believe, even if their belief is not fully informed yet, that Jesus has come to save. Back to my opening illustration, the movie only hints at what, if you read the book, makes clear. The guard of the king who welcomes Gandalf welcomes him because he recognizes who he is and what he can do. He confesses, I believe you are friends and folk worthy of honor who have no evil purpose, you may go in. The disciples believe Jesus is king, and so they welcome him, they receive him, and they celebrate him. And from there we see that a multitude of disciples then join in this joyous celebration. It says, as he was drawing near, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. The crowd slowly increases. You can picture it almost a few gathered here, six or seven over there, then 20, and then it becomes a multitude. The praise increases. The noise level increases. The multitude glorifies God in a loud, unified voice. And as a quick aside, I, I must confess how eager I am to once again be in the company of God's people, rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice for all his mighty works. I pray that at least one outcome of this strange time is a deeper yearning and a love for being in the company of God's people. But what were these mighty works? What exactly did this multitude of disciples praise and rejoice in the name of God for seeing? The immediate context of Luke 19 provides us with plenty. We looked at it last week, a blind man receiving his sight, a tax collector and sinner receiving the good news. We can even add John's account of Lazarus being raised from the dead, which happens right before his entry into Jerusalem. 
These works are the very things that Jesus gave the disciples of John the Baptist in Luke 7.22 as proof for his identity. He told those disciples, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. The king is also, as we see here, the Lord's anointed, the Messiah. And he has come to restore, to declare blessing, and to save. He has visited God's people, as to borrow Jesus' own words at the end of our passage today. And the words of the crowd declare this reality. They cry out together, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. These words flow right out of Psalm 118, which Josh read for us earlier this morning. Where in verse 26 it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Without stating it explicitly, Psalm 118 is about the king. He is joyfully leading the people in this procession towards the temple. It is a procession declaring victory over the enemies. And upon arriving at the temple, it would be the priest who would declare this blessing in the presence of the king and all the people. This psalm is a celebration of the king's arrival in accordance with God's perfect and sovereign plan. It is a confession of the hope of the people. Peace, the longing of every heart, including our own, has come. It is the peace of God in heaven working through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Glory is due to God because he is bringing about his plan to save and to redeem his people. And back at his birth, we see that it was the angels announcing peace and glory. And now, just 30 years later, it is man who has tasted but a glimpse of what the king is bringing with his kingdom. A recognition of Jesus as the king should mimic that of the disciples. We should be eager to lay down everything and anything to honor and serve our king. This is, in fact, what the king has called us to do in calling us to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him. We should be rejoicing and praising God for his salvation. Our lives should be marked with joy, even in times of great difficulty and sadness. Our king has come to save. He has brought peace, peace with God and peace with man, as Paul reveals in Ephesians chapter 2. And he will come again to bring the fullness of his kingdom for all eternity. May we worship our great king in recognition of who he is and what he has done. So Luke shows us in this triumphal entry that the king is ruling, that the king is recognized. But sadly he closes by showing us that the king is rejected. And here is where all this jubilation and this excitement takes a sorrowful turn. The triumphal entry for Luke ends in a kind of tragedy. Those who should have recognized the king and joined in the celebration refuse him. This rejection is first seen in the Pharisees' response. They actually rebuke Jesus. 
Luke says that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees are not stupid. They clearly see what is going on. They know what Psalm 118 is saying. You could rephrase their rebuke as, Jesus, you are not the king, so tell your disciples to stop saying the king has come. Their objection is likely both theological and political, because in their minds, Jesus as king is blasphemous. But also, if Jesus is king, then their whole system of religion that they have built upon must come crashing down. And if Jesus is king, then all the kingdoms must answer and submit to him. But the greater reality, as Jesus will lament, is that the Pharisees are spiritually blind. Their hearts have been hardened by unbelief. They cannot see what Jesus says all of creation sees and would willingly confess if they had lips. Jesus' response in verse 40 is highly ironic. That which is lifeless is ready to cry out, while that which has been given life is mute. But Jesus, as we've seen, is the sovereign king, and he already knows this. He was not the least bit surprised in the Pharisees' rejection. In fact, Psalm 118 confesses this was the expectation in verse 22, where it says, The stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus knew he would be rejected by the leaders. And this rejection would ultimately lead to the cross. Where the Lamb of God, the King, would take away the sins of the people, of his people, those who recognize and receive him. And this was the plan from the very beginning. Salvation would come through the rejection of the King. Because he was despised, we can be welcomed into his kingdom. But Jesus' rejection is not just seen from the Pharisees. It is seen probably most painfully in this lament that Jesus offers in verses 42 through 44. The people of God themselves, represented by the city, want nothing to do with their king. Now Luke records Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem twice, both here and in Luke 13, verses 34 through 35. That lament centers on the stubbornness of God's people to come to him. This one centers on what the city is about to face in light of their rejection of the king. And Jesus' lament is not for the faint of heart. Jesus, the language could, be, could say, is actually weeping. He is sobbing. He is even wailing over the city. He isn't merely shedding a tear or a handful of tears. He is in deep and emotional pain. And before we move into the why, it is good for us to see the humanity of our king in this moment. He was not a stoic. He was not God simply pretending to be human. He knew great emotional pain and sorrow and anguish as he walked this earth in our flesh. He felt the heartbreak of rejection. Only his was not out of some self-pity, but out of righteousness and holiness as the true king coming to save his people. And Jesus' lament invites us to lament as well. We can bring our tears before the king 
who cried as he walked in our steps. We can pour out our pain and our sorrow and our fear and our trouble before him. We can lament the sorrows of this fallen and sin-cursed world. We can even ask him in our laments to bring it to an end. And there have been many faithful brothers and sisters just over the past of this week who have been seeking to remind us of this great blessing in light of the days that we are in. May we heed their counsel and lament the sorrow and the grief that we see, that we hear, and that we know. But again, the reason for Jesus' sorrow is not because he simply feels rejected. He's not throwing a tantrum or whining. But instead, he weeps because he knows what is coming for Jerusalem. He knows the city has rejected the peace that he is offering. Like the citizens of that parable earlier in chapter 19, they have defiantly cried out, we do not want this man to reign over us. And the crucifixion by the week's end will be the ultimate proof. And Jerusalem will be judged for it. Rejecting the king of peace means peace is no longer possible. Rejecting the king means disaster. In short, the, the scene that Jesus describes in his lament describes what would take place in Jerusalem in AD 70. The Romans would surround the city, they would invade the city, and they would level the entire city, including the temple. The entire city, as verse 44 makes abundantly clear, would be completely and utterly destroyed. Jesus says not one stone would be left on top of another. And Jesus makes it clear this is the high cost of rejecting the king. It is the high cost awaiting any and all who continue to reject Jesus Christ as the king. This ultimately then demands the question, what will you do with King Jesus? Will you respond like the multitude of his disciples? Will you receive him with joy and with praise, with celebration? Will you receive him by faith and the gift of salvation that he purchased on the cross? Will you turn to him in willing and humble submission as your king? Or will you in your sin continue to reject your king? Will you deny the peace and the healing that can only be found in him? This seemingly simple question is a matter of life and death. There is life to be found in welcoming the king, in joining all of creation in humble recognition of his sovereign reign over all things. And sadly, there is also death to be found in rejecting the king, in turning from him as the religious leaders and the people did to their own peril and judgment. But to my fellow believers, this question is just as important for us today because we are called as those who follow the king to daily receive him and to follow him, to walk after his steps. We are called, as we did earlier this morning, to repent of the ways that we daily reject his reign over us by chasing the fleeting desires of our own hearts and the desires of this world. We need him to reign over us and to subdue our sin by the power of his spirit. But we are also called then to trust in his reign over all things. Even in times of chaos, disorder, isolation, and fear. He is still in control. He is still the king. 
for the men of Rohan as we opened, welcoming Gandalf turned out to be a great benefit, not only to them, but to the king himself. The grip of evil that was holding their kingdom fast was loosened. The king was immediately set free from his oppression. The dark and the gloom disappeared instantly. But it also provided, if you're familiar with the story, a big problem for the king's advisor, notably named Wormtongue. He withheld his welcome to the very end. And while he was spared immediate execution, he was cast out of the kingdom. And ultimately, his life would end very sad and come in, in, in a very unceremonious fashion. The triumphal entry here in Luke 19 is the account of the king's arrival. He is here. He is bringing salvation with him. And as we embark upon another Passion Week, we once again see our king crucified and resurrected. And once again, we are called to respond. And I pray that today and over the course of this week, we would respond with joy and with praise, with hearts overflowing with gratitude for our King. Jesus Christ is our King come to save. How will you welcome him? Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that Jesus Christ is our King, that he is the one you have sent from heaven to redeem and to save us who are lost. Father, forgive us for where we have rejected him in our daily lives, where we have sought to rule and reign over ourselves to our own foolishness and to our own peril. But God, thank you that you are a merciful king, that you are a gracious and good king. Would you help us to recognize your rule and your reign and to live in light of it, to submit ourselves humbly to you, to praise you for your rule over us. And may we find the joy and the blessing it is to walk in his steps. And God, as we get ready to celebrate this week, where we look forward to Good Friday when Christ was crucified on the cross for our sin and then walked out of the tomb on Sunday, would you give us a greater glimpse by your spirit of your salvation and the work that you have done through Christ. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen.